And we begin with another episode of the Book Ganassi Show, one of the greatest podcasts of all time. I'm just kidding. But now that you're here, I feel like it's only right if we start with the summary of the book. So we are hitting chapter 10 of book two, or how they like saying it, Roman numerals, chapter X. So let's begin. Roll the intro. So, chapter X starts off with Winston lying in the bed the next morning. The red-armed woman outside begins to sing, waking up Julia. Winston looks at the woman through the window, admires her fertility, and imagines that the pearls will one day give rise to a race of conscious. He believes that the pearls are gonna, he heavily believes that the pearls are gonna overthrow the party and are gonna be the reason for why the party will be no more. And, uh, well, obviously he believes that, and they think that, obviously, they will, they will throw off the yoke of party control. And Winston and Julia look at the woman and realize that they all, all that although they are doomed, she might hold the key to the future. Both Winston and Julia say that they are dead. And out of the shadows, a third voice interjects, you are dead. Suddenly, the two realize that a telescreen is hidden behind the picture of San Clement's church. Stomping boots echo from outside. The house is surrounded. A familiar voice speaks the last line of the San Clements rhyme. Here comes a candle to light you to bed. Here comes a chopper to chop off your head. The window shatters, and black-clad troops pour in. They smash the paperweight, and Winston thinks about his smallness. The troops kick Winston and beat Julia. Winston becomes disoriented. He cannot tell the time on the old-fashioned clock in the room. As the troops restrain Winston, Mr. Chankton enters the room and orders someone to pick up the shards from the chattered paperweight. Winston realizes that Mr. Chankton's voice was the one un- coming from the tower screen, and that Mr. Chankton is a member of the top police. That, that was a crazy, crazy chapter. Let's just, I, I, when I was writing the summary for this book, which is what I'm reading right now, I... I can't. It was just too interesting. I feel like it's only right if we analyze it right now. So, they believe, well, obviously, Mr. Charrington is the owner of the shop below. And they rented a room out from Mr. Charrington, not knowing who he is and his backstory, right? They think that they they believe fully that there is no, no touchscreen there. And that's why they tell all their secrets there. But one day, one day, which is that day, they start thinking about how they're going to get caught. One day, it might not be that day, which it is, but they both firmly believe they get caught. Little did they know that in the back of the San, of San Clement's picture, a telescreen was hiding that was looking and hearing everything that they, that they were saying. They, obviously, Mr. Charrington was should not know not about this already. And a whole bunch of armed men come and burst in beating them up. They found out that Mr. Sherrington was in fact a member of the top police. And they leave us in a cliffhanger after that. Let's go to chapter It's only right if we go on. Luckily we're no longer in chapter eleven B 
because we're now in book three. So, chapter one begins with Winston sitting in a bright bare cell in which the lights are always on. He has at last arrived at a place where there is no darkness. Four Tuscan monitors are looking at him. He has been transferred here from a holding cell and with a huge pro-woman who shared the last name Smith wonders if she is Winston's mother. In his solitary cell, Winston envisions his captors beating him and worries that the sheer pain will force him to betray Julia. Ampleforth, a poet whose crime was leaving the word God in a Rudyard crippling translation. His tossed and he is tossed into a cell. He is soon dragged away to her dreaded room 101, a place of mystery and unspeakable horror. Winston shares his cell with a very variety of fellow prisoners, including his fluctuant neighbor Parsons, who was turned in by his own children for committing thought crime. Seeing starvation, beating, and man- wait, okay. Honestly, before I continue reading my summary, I think it's only good that we talk about how controlled the people are in this in this area, because they're controlling the kids and corrupting their minds to believing that it is only right to even turn in their own family, the own people that created them, his own, their own father. And it really shows you how controlling this government is and can how and how it can corrupt he can truly corrupt the minds of everybody. So let's continue. Seeing starvation, beating and mangling, Winston hopes dearly that the Brotherhood will send him a razor blade which which with obviously he might commit suicide. His dreams of the Brotherhood are wrecked when O'Brien is his hoped for link to the rebellion enters his cell. Winston cries out that they've got him too. He's he does have he has no more faith. And O'Brien replies, They got me long ago and identifies himself as an operative of the Ministry of Love. O'Brien asserts that Winston had known O'Brien was an operative all along, and Winston admits that this is true. A guard smashes Winston's elbow and Winston thinks that no one can become a hero in the face of physical pain because it is too much to endure. He is worried that the pain of the torture is so much that no one can stop, can, well, no, nobody can, can not give in, and that everybody will be giving in to the, to the government. That's basically all it is. Uh, thank you for listening to our podcast. Hope you're here for, this, for the next chapter because it's going to be a good one. Thank you and have a wonderful, wonderful day.